Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Thanks for listening this Monday, August 16th, 2021. Topics on today's episode include UWM earnings, my interview with Brian Filkey about the non-QM space, and why consumer confidence shot down to close last week. I'd like to thank this week's podcast sponsor, Candor. Have you heard of Candor yet? As you'll hear shortly, they're gaining groundswell for their dynamic, adaptive, and automated underwriting engine. UWM announced its earnings this morning. Second quarter of 2021 net income of $138.7 million on $59.2 billion in total originations. The record loan origination volume for the quarter also included a quarterly record of $24.1 billion in purchase volume, and net income for the second quarter was inclusive of a $219.1 million decline in fair value of mortgage servicing rights. UWM is an independent mortgage bank not tied to a depository bank. IMBs have their share of concerns. For example, will we see Community Reinvestment Act requirements put in place for independent mortgage banks? It doesn't make a lot of sense to many and information is posted on the MBA page. Banks have plenty of advantages in the residential line, such as last month when Wells Fargo stopped offering personal lines credit. Some banks are pretty good at offering innovative products. For the links to those stories, as well as the latest on employment opportunities and transitions, broker and lender products and services, and events and trainings, visit robchrisman.com. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome to the show Brian Filkey, Chief Strategy Officer at Interfirst. Brian has extensive experience and expertise in capital markets, product development, operations, technology, and executive management. He has overseen more than $3 billion in non-QM originations and has experience running wholesale, retail, and correspondent divisions for national lenders. He is regarded as one of the pioneers and thought leaders of non-QM with a particular specialty in business purpose product development. Brian has 15 years of industry experience with substantial expertise in alternative product development. His previous employers include PIMCO, Capital One, and Suisse. And I think the best way to start this interview is to say, can you give our listeners a little background about Interfirst? Yeah, absolutely. So Interfirst, was one of the largest non-bank originators in the early you know, 2010s. So Dimitri, founder and CEO, started the company as a mortgage broker back in the early 2000s. Then after the subprime crisis, uh, opportunistically found a lender, moved into wholesale lending, and by 2012 was doing about $15.15 billion a year uh, in originations, all conforming high-quality paper. Um, and then you know, came back into the space here and it with a focus on both the combo of the consumer direct retail business and the wholesale business. And the philosophy is really around delivering a transparent process uh, to consumers and to brokers. So they really understand that whether you get a loan product that's a Fannie Mae loan product from lender A or lender B, you're really getting the same two by four. It's just really a question of service and price ultimately. Uh, and our philosophy and focus here at Interfirst is on trying to create and deliver loan products that create an opportunity for our partners that is not a niche play, but a large scale play and focused specifically around the highest quality borrowers in the universe of mortgage lending. So how do we get 
high FICO, uh, liquid, uh, employed borrowers, uh, experienced borrowers into homes at the lowest rate possible by creating a process that's got the lowest cost possible to then translate and push that cost savings into the hands of our broker and, uh, and, and uh, consumer partners. And I saw on your website something called The One. Can, can you tell people what that is and how it's filling a need in the market? Yeah, absolutely. So I think just pausing for a second and talking about what's been happening this year, which you've been going through in your blog, and I'm sure everybody's aware of it, but just to focus everybody on, on what we're doing here is that the government has this agreement with Fannie and Freddie that they call the PSPA. Uh, and in that, they dictate sort of what the FHFA and Fannie and Freddie are, are going to be doing. And one of the things that they did this year, which caused a lot of ripples in the marketplace, is they put a cap on the percentage of loans that the GSEs can insure slash acquire of 7% on, on non-owner plus second homes. And so when you think about what that does to different players, it may not impact anybody at all. It may impact someone tremendously. So we've heard rumors of some lenders who are over 20% in terms of their, you know, last year what their originations were of non-owner plus second home. So obviously a major implication for, for loan officers and brokers that do business with those partners. And then there are obviously other players that are well below the cap that wouldn't feel that. Uh, so what we did is we took a look at the different markets, heavy refi markets, heavy purchase markets, average uh, origination markets versus, you know, the low and high end. And what we found was, uh, you know, that 7% cap would on average take a $2 trillion origination year, which would be half of what was done in 2020, uh, and say, what would happen if a 1% reduction in non-owner and second homes took place in the market? What's that opportunity look like? And that opportunity is $20 billion for every 1% reduction or about 70,000 units, depending what loan size you're using. So a pretty significant in terms of number of affected transactions. Uh, and to put that in perspective, you know, there's this marketplace out there that people call non-QM, which is, you know, you must define your terms. People call things non-QM that aren't non-QM. It can get a little confusing there. But in terms of what we'll say is the non-conforming jumbo, exclude jumbo, don't include anything eligible to sale to, or guaranteed by Fannie or Freddie or FHA or VA or USDA. So no Ginny loans, no Fannie loans, no Freddie loans. That marketplace per year is somewhere between 30 and 50 billion, depending on the year. So a $20 billion overflow from agency into, into what we'll just call non-agency here uh, could be you know, a 40, 50, 60% increase uh, in volume for every 1% change, depending on sort of how you're defining that marketplace. So that means that you know, it's a pretty dramatic change in the non-agency landscape, even though 20 billion on the 2 trillion is a very small number. So one is a program that we created at Interfirst that is designed to help fill this void and uh, deliver a financing solution to borrowers who could be affected by the PSPA cap or provide alternative financing solutions for borrowers that uh, you know, just don't want to go through the Fannie and Freddie process for various reasons, which we can get into here or not. But ultimately, the issue with one and the non-QM or exempt marketplace in general is that people don't really understand it. And it's not a massive market relative. So there's not a lot of incentive to learn. Uh, and so I just basically at this point bring up what's the difference between an iPhone and an Android? You know, yeah, if, if you want to read the book and go online and search around and figure out, you know, how to really use the Android. 
there's a tremendous amount of things you can do with that phone. It's very capable, but it's not intuitive to the level of, you know, that the, the iPhone has had the one button and you could get everything done and grandparents and children and everybody know how to use it because you don't need an instruction manual to figure it out. So we really approached developing this non this this non-agency product with the Apple philosophy in mind. And that was to create as simple of a process as possible by still by still maintaining a uh, complex program. So it's not just a simple program that only does one little thing, but we made it seem simple to the borrower or to the broker because of, you know, sort of the, the same sort of nuance of we're going to be the experts and we're going to figure out how to make this easier for borrowers. So one is a program designed for investment properties and it's called a DSCR or a debt service coverage ratio loan. But ultimately what you're doing here is you're qualifying this property based on the cash flow of the property. So you're comparing the rental receipts that the property is either currently receiving or based on the survey of rents and the appraisal, what the cash flow could be and comparing that to the payment that the borrower would be making. One special by, you know, the name is really landing here and telling you what we're trying to achieve, which is part of the marketing ploy here is to help you understand what we're doing just simply in the name. And so one means it has one rate. So no matter what you give us, if it meets the credit box that we have, the borrower is going to get the same rate. And so it's a, it's a very simplified from an, from a, you know, how do I learn and get up the curve here to learn what the product is. And it's extra simple when you look at how the light, the loan program is priced, because to compare that to, you know, our peers, many in the same space, uh, that compete in this DFCR program have 150 to 250 different adjustments and different interest rates that could potentially pop up. Well, it definitely sounds like it's helpful to those that are using it. In addition to being so simple and putting things in one box, what other ways does it differentiate itself from competitors? Well, I think the, the biggest one is having somebody understand how it works. And so I think that can't be overlooked. And, and the thing that we're the most proud of is, is how simple it is. So, you know, to, to get familiar with us or with another lender, you have to read sometimes, you know, 150 different guidelines, pages of guidelines. Then you have to go through and read four or five different matrices. And then you have to go figure out how to price the loan. And then that's just at one lender. And then you got to go figure out who else offers this type of a product because everybody names them differently, right? They all have different adjustments. They all call them, you know, some other marketed or non-marketed name brand. Uh, and so with us, we've carved out our DSCR guidelines are just a simple uh, subset. So you don't have to read through, you know, bank statement guidelines, asset depletion guidelines, just to find our DSCR. So we've simplified that. We just have a, a slim DSCR guideline. And then we have, you know, our matrix is very simple as well. Uh, and then, you know, we have that single rate. So that differentiates it. And then when you talk about these alternative programs, because again, there isn't standardization, people have different levels of reserves. They have different loan amounts that they will do. There are some people that will claim, you know, marketing ploys of we allow unlimited cash out, which can, you know, scare some people or excite some people, depending on, you know, your view on, on the world. Um, but, you know, like for instance, if, if your maximum cash out is 500 grand to a certain LTV, say 50 LTV, well, on a million dollar loan amount, if the guy owned the property outright, the most you can get out is 500,000. So you really have a cap on your cash out, uh, cash in hand amount. But our program, you know, we go up to 80 LTV on a purchaser rate and term, and we go up to 75 LTV on a cash out. And you get the same rate, whether you're a condo, you have two units, you have four units, 
uh, whether you want a 30-year fix or you want an arm. Uh, and so you know, that's pretty uh, abnormal in the marketplace. And the reason we're able to do that is because you know, if you look at how rate sheets are created, usually you have some Wall Street style firm that interfaces with the rating agencies of the world who drive sort of the economics for the Wall Street entity. Um, and they're looking at the different characteristics of the loans to determine how those are going to price out in terms of a return basis for the end investor. And when you're a Wall Street firm and you're going to offer a thousand different loan combinations of LTV, FICO, program type, income, et cetera, et cetera, you end up being worried that someone may deliver you all 90 LTV, 600 FICO loans. So you better price those very differently than 60 LTV, 800 FICO loans. Uh, but what we've done is we've created a matrix that we really leave the loan programs that we, we don't want to do because they're small or that we find them to be you know, too risky. But we still capture about 80% of the available marketplace. So we're willing to avoid the 20% because if we go after the 80%, we can create a very simplified process and a very simple rate sheet. And that allows us to know what our weighted averages will be before we originate a loan. So a lot of lenders just kind of cast a net out, right? They want to be everything to everyone. Uh, and this is not a knock. These are just business model differences. Uh, ultimately, if you're going to be everything to everyone, you're not sure what you're going to end up getting. And as long as you price everything differently, in theory, you shouldn't really matter. It shouldn't matter to you where you end up. Are you barbelled? Are you on one end of the spectrum? Are you right down the middle? But for us, we want, to, we want to have a homogenized pool of loans. And if we can get that homogenized pool of loans, ultimately, we'll understand how these will execute. And therefore, if we know that the blended average, which is not barbelled, is approximately A, B, and C, we know what that pricing you know, return is going to look like. And so we can offer that pricing, uh, that simplified pricing model to our, to our end user. And that's really the difference is either the onus is on you to figure out how to, how to get us what we want, or the onus is on us to make sure that we design a program that allows it to be simple. And so that philosophy is what differentiates us from our, from our, peer, from our peer group. So what I just tell people is you don't have to know all the nuances of our program. If your borrower has a high FICO score and they're, eight, and they're 80 LTV or below, and they're doing an investment property transaction, you should call us because we're going to be the best priced uh, offer for you. And it's going to be the simplest way for you to get interfaced uh, into this market. And hopefully we'll do such a good job that it gives these guys a good impression that opens up the opportunity for other lenders to, uh, you know, to step in and do other non-agency style products in a responsible way uh, and leave a good taste in the mouth of, of brokers uh, and, and uh, consumers and you know, lead, lead our non-agency market into a positive reputation uh, to overcome some of the, you know, the, the legacy tarnish that's on it from, from the old, you know, 2000s. Yes. And that is a fantastically large opportunity for you that exists out there. And uh, I wish, I wish you luck on that. The PSPA cap, which you mentioned earlier, Calabria is out. How does that affect the market, how does that affect what you're doing? Where, where do you see it going? What's your, what are your thoughts on, the, on that? Sure. I mean, the immediate impact is we've seen in the second quarter about 10 times, uh, which 10x, the number of securitizations of agency-eligible uh, agency non-owner-occupied loans in the market. So in terms of the immediate impact, it caused about 10 times as many loans uh, to end up in the private market that would otherwise go into the public market. 
you know, uh, you know, personally, my view is I don't think we should be subsidizing using taxpayer money, uh, your ability to buy a seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth investment property. You know, that's my personal view. It doesn't really matter what, what, what my beliefs are, but, you know, that's where I'm coming from on this front. Uh, and I think it's something that the, the, the um, FHFA and the GSEs have adequately priced uh, in terms of creating competition. And what I mean by that is, you know, for several years now, even before the PSPA cap came into place, there were, there were players like Flagstar and others who could do private label securitizations and get better execution than they could selling to Fannie and Freddie because Fannie and Freddie have draconian loan level price adjustments for these products, which in my opinion is uh, prudent because you know we've seen for a very long time the, the the agencies the GSEs you know being exempt from QM rules until recently uh, having subsidized sort of um, pricing especially in the in the 2000s where um, you know we couldn't compete as a private marketplace so it was no wonder that all these loans ended up uh, at the GSEs and ultimately you know if the stated objective of the is a post subprime uh, post subprime uh, market was to try to reduce taxpayer liability. I mean, ultimately here, we have more loans guaranteed as a number and as a percentage by, you know, Fannie, Freddie, and Ginny uh, than, than ever before. So how do we reduce that? And I think the PSPA cap is a, you know, a prudent attempt at trying to get that done. But even if that cap were to go away, the pricing difference between agency and non-agency is actually more beneficial for non-agency execution um, because of those LLPAs, but then also look at the marketplace. So we've done some research and I talked about you know, one of the things that we do uh, you know, at Interfirst to try to find the biggest markets where there's an opportunity. Because if we create a product, but only a hundred borrowers out of, a, out of 10 million are eligible for it, it's not really useful for you unless you're a very niche player. So when you look at non-owner occupied uh, units or, or um, how many homes are out there, that would be eligible for our type of a program, which is a one to four unit, you know, residential style home uh, that is technically called a business purpose loan, but it's just not owner occupied. There's 36 million of those types of uh, properties out there, which represents uh, about one out of every three homes in America. And so it's a massive opportunity. And I think one of the, one of the, the issues ultimately with any, any market that's trying to grow is that it hits this sort of threshold where it's only so large because the players that want, let, let's say private equity players, they want a large return, right? They want, they, they take money in from institutional investors and they promise these large returns. Well, if that type of a person is involved in our market, well, rates are going to be higher because they need a higher return. But if that market can grow and create a track record of performance and can, can create, you know, a larger marketplace, it may start to bring in uh, insurance companies or mutual funds or people who have a lower return, which then means we can offer better interest rates to that borrower. And I think you're starting to see that take place now as, as guys are looking for ways to get into some collateral that they don't have to compete against the government. Because as a result of, uh, you know, the post subprime and now post COVID, a lot of these bailout programs and things that these non um, traditional monetary policy, extreme monetary policies that were put in place causes the Fed to really you know, start trying to get in front of a lot of these hedge funds and asset managers and buy collateral. And now they're, you're competing with the Fed. So these types of programs that we're creating now are a space where there's not competition from the government. Uh, and if we grow it large enough, hopefully we can start to entice. And you're already seeing it now, some insurance players and other players that come in 
where there's a natural asset liability match, unlike banks and subprime, which had a natural, uh, an unnatural asset liability match. Uh, and um, you know, that should help drive down ultimately uh, returns, reduce some leverage that's required from the marketplace, and ultimately just that translates into a healthier, more liquid market. And for those that, you know, you don't, you don't have to look too far back into history here to remember what happened to a lot of non-agency, uh, non-QM issuers right after COVID when the market seized up because of the reliance on all of this additional type of leverage uh, and what happens in markets that aren't sponsored by the government versus those that are, well, you know, they dry up pretty quickly. So if we can move away from some of this leverage, uh, create high quality products, um, I think that we can, you know, generate lower required yields and create a larger marketplace. So I know that's kind of a long-winded answer, but I think, you know, intuitively this market needs to grow and whether the PSPA cap stays or goes, there'll be an opportunity in this space uh, either way. I agree with you that I think the market will grow and liquidity will improve. So I want to close with asking you, when it comes to your company, you feel like you have the best product out there and you see this market that's evolving and becoming healthier. Where does the market go from here? How do you stay in front of the competition from here? How do things evolve? I mean, ultimately what we're trying to do is not widen guidelines, you know, very wide. And we're not trying to just do, you know, 100, 120, 130 LTV loans. We're trying to be thoughtful and mindful about, you know, what happened in the 2000s and the things that worked well and the things that didn't work well. Uh, you know, so staying in front of the competition, I think, is, is really just about trying to build a bigger market for everyone. You know, we're not looking at this market, whether it's the agency market um, or, or the non-agency market, we're not looking at, you know, how do we steal all this from everybody else? We're trying to figure out, you know, how do we create a marketplace that, that is easy to understand? How do we create a marketplace where we can be active participants in a self-regulatory body manner? How do we, how do we make sure that not only are, are we being competitive and growing the market, but we're doing it responsibly? Because if we don't oversee and provide the oversight to our market, you know, the government will. And a lot of times the government doesn't have the nuances and they'll try to do their best. But, you know, a lot of times there's unintended consequences that come from that. So from what we're trying to do is really drive the larger market share. And so if this market goes from 30 billion to 300 billion, we can actually lose market share uh, and end up with more volume than everybody else. And I'm not saying that's our stated objective, but, you know, our goal here is really to try to carve out the best loans, create a high, you know, high performance track record and use that track record to entice some you know, other players into that space that can help drive down yields, that can help us get even higher quality collateral and have this positive feedback loop that really helps us dominate the market segment that we're in. And you know, hopefully we can lead by example and other people who have you know, their different philosophy and how they want to dominate their market can, can bring you know, some of what we've brought to the table. We can learn from them and, you know, and, and all come together to create a larger, more liquid, market where there's less taxpayer liability uh, directly and indirectly through doing you know, prudent loans with good town payments uh, to, to people who can afford their home, uh, who have a track record and experience, and you know, especially in this non-owner occupied space, uh, to make sure that we're growing it prudently. Fantastic. Thanks for coming on and talking to me today. Absolutely, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. There was a lot of demand for U.S. Treasuries to close last week which drove yields down. Much of it was due to U.S. consumer sentiment falling to the lowest level in almost a decade as Americans grew more concerned about the inflation, the Delta variant, and the effects on the economy. Grow concern enough to rein in spending, and the economy really will be a cause for concern. 
Adding to the trouble, deteriorating sentiment was seen across income, age, and education subgroups and observed across all regions. There was a hint of relief in last week's inflation data. However, high inflation persists and remains well above the Fed's 2% target. Economists expect that as supply constraints ease and demand fades, inflation will begin to cool. That doesn't necessarily mean that the price increases we've experienced this summer will reverse. Input costs continue to weigh on both manufacturers and service providers as prices for processed goods are up 23% from one year ago, and services for an intermediate demand are up 9% over the last year. Job openings hit a new record in June with 10.1 million jobs available, roughly 0.9 unemployed workers per opening. Businesses managing labor shortages, product shortages, and rising costs across all sectors simultaneously took a toll on the NFIB's small business survey, which fell more than anticipated in July. The bright side is that despite the headwinds, 2021 will likely be a banner year for economic growth, and even more so with new fiscal spending working its way through Congress. This week's most important data comes tomorrow when we will get updates on retail sales, industrial production and capacity utilization, and business inventories. After all the recent tapering talk, this week's current Fed speaker calendar is relatively light with Jackson Hole two weeks away. Though Fed Chair Powell will speak tomorrow and the minutes from the July 27th and 28th, FOMC meeting will be released Wednesday afternoon. Today's calendar is light on data with just Empire Fed manufacturing for August and June tick data this afternoon. The New York Fed desk will purchase an average of $4.7 billion of MBS per day during the week, with up to $4.9 billion of 30-year 2% and 2.5% today across two operations. We begin the week with agency MBS prices better slightly, and the 10-year yielding 1.28% after closing last week at 1.30%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. It's a five-minute walk from my house to the corner bar but it's a 35-minute walk from the corner bar to my house. The difference is staggering. (laughs) Thanks again to Candor for sponsoring today's podcast. I look forward to hearing more great things. Want to know more? Go to candortechnology.com. Tell them Robbie Christman sent you. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at Robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.